Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. We are in the second chapter of Peter's second epistle and in the second part of this three-part series. And today's teaching is entitled, Peter and the Truth of God. As we talked about last week on this podcast, 2 Peter was written sometime around 60 to 110 CE, and it's written to people who are struggling with false teachers. There are people who are in positions of authority who are telling falsehoods to the common people, and Peter hears about this and is frustrated by it. He's so frustrated that he sits down to write this letter that would eventually become 2 Peter, And in the second chapter of this letter, he writes about what people can do in response to false teachers, to people who are in positions of authority who continually lie. Last week, we talked about the first chapter of Peter, where Peter is prefacing his discussion about false teachers by telling people to remember something at the core of their faith. We read this thing that is at the core of faith in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, when he writes, Thus God has given us, through these things, his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire and may become participants in the divine nature. Peter begins this letter by telling people you have to be active participants when it comes to being a Christian. And this is necessary because this discernment about what to do with false teachers requires your active participation rather than just being passively handed to you. So that's what the first chapter is about in 2 Peter. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is an invitation to participation. And with that groundwork laid, Peter begins to tell the audience of this letter what to do with false teachers. In this chapter, he makes three different points about how people should react to people in positions of authority lying to them. And so for the rest of this podcast, we're going to talk about these three points that Peter makes in 2 Peter 2. The first point can be found in verses 1 and 2. But before we read those words, I want to talk about American literature. And specifically the book Walden by Henry David Thoreau. The whole premise of Walden is that Thoreau moved out to Ralph Waldo Emerson's cabin on the shores of Walden Pond to live a life of simplicity and solitude. This self-imposed isolation lasted for two years, two months, and two days. After that time was up, Thoreau returned to society and began to write a memoir of his experience on Walden Pond. This memoir took 10 years to write. And in 1854, the nonfiction work Walden was finally published to middling criticism. Shortly after Walden's publication, Thoreau passed away. Ralph Waldo Emerson, a close friend of Thoreau, picked up the mantle of Walden and began sharing it with whomever he encountered. Because Ralph Waldo Emerson so strongly believed in this work, 
is the major reason why we consider Walden to be an American classic. It's such a classic of literature that Dr. Mark Edmondson from the University of Virginia was on PBS NewsHour in 2013, and he said these words, if I could assign one book to every student in America and everybody else in America, it would be Thoreau's Walden. Walden, according to Dr. Mark Edmondson, is antithetical to just about everything we think in the world now. Voluntary poverty, simplicity, living outside the grid, living poor, and devoting your life to writing and to nature. Now, these values that Dr. Mark Edmondson pull from the book Walden are obviously good values, especially in the hyper-consumerist culture that we've created in America today. This idea that we should live more simply and be more in touch with nature are incredibly valuable. And this is why so much of America values and cherishes Walden as one of the great literary works of our culture. But I have a confession I need to make to you, oh faithful listener of the podcast. I've never read Walden. One of my good friends read Walden and he told me it was insanely boring. My friend was summarizing the book Walden to me, and he was saying Thoreau really likes to talk about ants, and there's a whole chapter devoted to ants, and it's one chapter too long. <laughs> so I've known about Walden. I haven't taken the time to read it, but I recently started taking the time to watch a TV show called Dickinson. Now, Dickinson is a pop history take on the life and trials and work of Emily Dickinson. And it's highly fictionalized, but I really enjoyed this show for some reason, and I can't really tell you why. But in one of the episodes, Emily Dickinson goes and visits Henry David Thoreau while he's living on Walden Pond. Now, we have no historical evidence to show that these two met or were aware of each other, but I think the producers of Dickinson don't really care because it's that kind of show. So in this episode, Emily Dickinson meets Henry David Thoreau and they present Thoreau as a narcissist who embellishes stories and makes stories up in order to ensure the success of Walden. And while I never thought that Dickinson was trying to be historically accurate, I remember thinking, well, that's weird that they would trash Henry David Thoreau. So I began to do some research as to whether or not there was any validity to this idea that Henry David Thoreau made up or fabricated parts of Walden. And when I say I did some research, I mean I typed it into Google. And sure enough, one of the first things that came up was an article by a woman named Catherine Schultz published by The New Yorker in 2015, and the title of the article was The Moral Judgments of Henry David Thoreau. In this article, she writes these words, only by elastic measures can Walden be regarded as nonfiction. In reality, Walden Pond in 1845 was scarcely more off the grid relative to contemporaneous society than Prospect Park is today. The commuter train to Boston ran along Walden Pond's southwest side. In summer, the place swarmed with picnickers and swimmers, while in winter, it was frequented by ice cutters and skaters. Thoreau, according to Schultz, could stroll from his cabin to his family home in Concord in 20 minutes. 
He made that walk several times a week, lured by his mother's cookies or the chance to dine with friends. Catherine Schultz goes on to say that even his sisters and mother did his laundry on a regular basis. She continues to write, these facts he glosses over in Walden despite detailing with otherwise skinflint precision his eating habits and expenditures. Walden is a fantasy about rustic life divorced from the reality of living in the woods and especially a fantasy about escaping the entanglements and responsibilities of living among other people. So according to Catherine Schultz, who is held to a much higher editorial standard than the show Dickinson, there is validity in the fact that Thoreau fabricated both the premise and large portions of Walden. This idea of a self-imposed isolation simply wasn't as true or as grand as Thoreau made it sound in the book. Now, it's here that someone could point to the end results of Walden. The fact that it tells us we should live more simply, that we should be more connected with nature, that we shouldn't be so obsessed with wealth and say, Craig, I understand that portions of Walden were fabricated, but look at the end result. These are values that we need. Does it really matter if Thoreau fabricated the premise and portions of Walden? And this is the question that is important for us to ask on this podcast. Does it matter if Thoreau fabricated the premise and portions of Walden? Because I believe that if Peter was on this podcast with us, he would say into the microphone, I have a very strong opinion about this. Peter writes about this opinion in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, and it begins in verse 16 when he says these words, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter is writing to people who are struggling with false teachers. And Peter begins by talking about participation and then he launches into his eyewitness testimony. He references an event called the transfiguration. And the transfiguration is a moment when Peter was on a hill and saw Jesus be revealed in glorious light and heard the voice of God himself. So Peter puts his name on this eyewitness testimony and he says, I want to tell you what I saw. I heard God's voice with my own ears. Now, of course, the next question that any rational human being would ask is, how do I know that you actually heard the voice of God? After all, this person that you are calling a false teacher, Peter, this person right here tells me that he's hearing the voice of God. How do I know which one of you is telling the truth? And so after sharing his eyewitness testimony, 
Peter writes about how you can discern who is telling the truth. In verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2, Peter writes these words, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive opinions. They will even deny the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Even so, many will follow their licentious ways, and because of these teachers, the way of truth will be maligned. According to Peter, this is the mark of a false teacher. One who maligns the way of truth. According to Peter, there are people who care about the details, who try their best to get the story right who are open to what life presents them and are not afraid to admit when they are wrong. But also, according to Peter, there are other people, people who do not care about the details, who refuse to admit when they are wrong, who fudge the details, who blur the lines between what is truth and reality in order to get a point across. Peter calls these people false teachers. And so when we ask the question, does it matter if Thoreau fabricated the premise and portions of Walden, Peter, I believe, would say absolutely. Because there's a big difference between someone who actually lives in solitude and someone who has this admiration for solitude from a distance. And while I have not read Walden, my understanding is, is that Thoreau has this low-level hatred that runs throughout the building for other people. These other people that he supposedly doesn't need, but in reality keeps going back to for cookies and laundry. You can see this idea summarized in a quote from the book Walden when he writes, I find it wholesome to be alone the greater part of the time. To be in company, even with the best, is soon wearisome and dissipating. I love to be alone. I never found the companion that was so companionable as solitude. Now compare and contrast those words with someone who actually lived in solitude. This past Saturday, I invited Corey Fuller to come up and speak about a time when he lived in solitude. And these are his words that he shared with Paradox last Saturday. After um, college, I took a year off and uh, had a gap year in South America uh, to learn Spanish and travel around, and I spent uh, a month of that in the country of Ecuador. In planning for my trip, I had read, uh, looked through my Lonely Planet guide and had found this highly rated uh, national park that they recommended that you go hike in called El Cajas. So I uh, planned this trip, and like most Lonely Planet things, if it was highly rated in Lonely Planet, then you knew that there were going to be crowds of people there. So I figured trekking through this national park for a couple days by myself with my backpack wouldn't be a big deal. So I got off the bus at the entrance and ran up to the uh, sign here to, to take my selfie, of course. And um, I was surprised when I looked around that I didn't see anybody. There was nobody there. Um, so I figured I just was probably the people had already gotten, you know, the hikers were already ahead of me and I would catch them up on the trail. So I started hiking that day with my backpack on my first day of three days of, of hiking through this national park. And um, I got 
I started walking through this serene um, lakes, beautiful high altitude scenery, and I didn't see a single person. And I got to the end of my trek that day, set up camp in this sort of remote area, and I had my fireplace ready to go, um, or my fire there that I had set up, and I started, it became strangely emotional. I started, uh, well, for those of you who know me, that's pretty rare. And so I, I started uh, crying, and uh, that night I did not get good sleep while I was sleeping in my tent. I had a bunch of weird dreams, and I figured it was a fluke just the first day. I, would, I didn't know what was going on, but I figured the next day it would be resolved. So I woke up the next morning, started hiking again, eager to find somebody to talk to or see somebody. And as I was hiking through these lakes, I would look around the corner to see if I could see somebody. Every time I went around the corner, I didn't see anybody. It was a little bit misty, so I sometimes would imagine that I was seeing somebody, and as I got closer, I realized, uh, no, it was just a figment of my imagination. My mind was playing tricks on me. Um, and uh, I was starting to feel really isolated and, and depressed, and it got to the point where I uh, started talking to um, this peanut and grape that I had with me on this can of Smuckers, and it was sort of my, my, my version of uh, Wilson from uh, the volleyball from Castaway. And um, somehow that comforted me a little bit, and I was, uh, would talk to that as the day went on, and I was just desperate, searching for somebody to talk to or connect with. And so I set up camp that night, and uh, that was the end of my second day, and I was desperate to get out of there. I needed, I just was feeling isolated and depressed, and emotional and um, wanted to get out of there. So the next morning I woke up um, and uh, started hiking out early in the morning, desperate to get out of there. And I would walk through these beautiful lakes again. And again, I didn't see a single person the entire time. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't see any real, even any evidence that there had ever been a person there. There was nothing. So I finally made it out on the third day through this beautiful valley that at the end of it was the highway. And... Um, I got to the highway and waited for a couple hours for the public bus to come. Finally, when I got on the bus, it was this bus that was crowded um, with people I didn't know, strangers. They were speaking a language I didn't speak, and yet when I sat down in the middle of the bus, somehow all those strange emotions and feelings just disappeared. There was something about being in the presence of, other, of people, even though I didn't know any of them, I didn't speak the same language as them, that was strangely comforting, and all those feelings went away. Um, from this experience, I learned the importance of um, connection and uh, social interaction that is part of the human experience. Um, I was only isolated for three days, um, even though it felt like a month, yet the whole time uh, it was affecting me mentally, um, so, I mean, uh, emotionally, physically, to the point where I was uh, talking to um, a grape and, an, and a peanut. And my mind was desperately trying to uh, find someone or something to connect to, even if it was a can of Smuckers. I think connection is hardwired into the human experience. And uh, I not only did I learn that from this experience, but also the importance of connecting to my, staying connected to my family and friends. So thank you. Corey's conclusions stand in stark contrast with Thoreau's conclusion. And when we ask, does it matter if Thoreau fabricated the premise and portions of Walden, Catherine Schultz, the author from The New Yorker, writes these words. She says, begin with false premises and you risk reaching false conclusions. Begin with falsified premises and you forfeit your authority. 
Apologists for Thoreau often claim that he merely distorted some trivial facts in the service of a deeper truth. But how deep can a truth be? Indeed, how true can it be if it is not built from facts? And that is the problem with basing one's beliefs on personal intuition and direct revelation. It justifies the substitution of anecdote and authority for evidence and reason. If Peter heard Catherine Schultz say these words, I believe he would stand up and say, say it again louder for the people in the back. She writes, it justifies the substitution of anecdote and authority for evidence and reason. For Peter, those who malign the way of truth are not to be trusted with teaching. So the first thing that we can learn from 2 Peter chapter 2 about false teachers is this. The teachers worth listening to are the teachers who have the greatest care and respect for the truth. Whenever someone in authority fudges the details, doesn't pay attention to when they are proved wrong, or doesn't seem to care about getting the story right, these are people in authority that should not be listened to. When someone in your Facebook feed shares an article that they've never read, they just agree with the headline, these are teachers who should not be listened to. When someone accepts only one corporation as an acceptable form of honest news and condemns all the other news sources around them, rather than embracing diverse perspectives, these are teachers who should not be listened to. The first thing we learn from 2 Peter chapter 2 about false teachers is that the teachers worth listening to are the teachers who have the greatest care and respect for the truth. That's how you distinguish between who is telling the truth and who is lying. This brings us to the second thing that Peter teaches, and it can be found in verses 3 to 16 of 2 Peter 2. Now, I'll begin by reading verse 3, and then I'm going to launch into a paraphrase of what happens from verse 4 to 16. Peter writes about false teachers with these words, And in their greed, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Their condemnation pronounced against them long ago has not been idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, Peter says, it may seem like these people who are blurring the facts are getting ahead, but their destruction is not asleep. Something bad will come of this. Do not be tempted to take shortcuts by maligning the way of truth. To support this idea that honesty is truly the best policy, Peter then tells five stories. The first is about angels. The second is about Noah and the flood. The third is about Sodom and Gomorrah. The fourth is about Lot surviving Sodom. And the fifth is about Balaam, his donkey, and an angel. He then points to those five stories and asks the reader to consider what has happened in each of those cases. He basically is telling them, look at the stories in our history. See how in every scenario the truth rose to the surface and won. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this podcast giving you historical context for the stories about the angel and Noah and the flood and Lot and Balaam, but I think that if Peter was writing to listeners of this podcast, 
Peter would write about our history that we know well. Not only that, but Peter would write to our specific needs about things that we are currently experiencing. So I think that Peter, if he was writing to us today, would not reference these five stories, but instead would reference impeachment. Because that seems to be in the air right now in 2019, doesn't it? Donald Trump is only the fourth U.S. president to face an impeachment inquiry in the House of Representatives. So if Peter was writing to us today, he would say, are you feeling anxiety by the uncertainty in our political atmosphere? He would then point to our history and say, see, look what happened in each of these stories. Andrew Johnson was the first president ever put up for impeachment inquiry by the House of Representatives. The reason he was up for inquiry was because he was Abraham Lincoln's vice president. And spoiler alert, if you have not read U.S. history, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Now, when Andrew Johnson was selected as the vice president, nobody obviously anticipated that Abraham Lincoln would be assassinated. And when he was killed, Andrew Johnson rose to power, and Andrew Johnson was a Southern Democrat who was sympathetic to the Confederate cause. Because of this, Andrew Johnson began to pardon Confederate generals, Confederate power brokers, and Confederate politicians who had betrayed the Constitution of the United States of America. The House of Representatives did not appreciate these pardons, and to consolidate more power, Andrew Johnson removed members of Lincoln's cabinet and started replacing them with his own. Because of this, the House of Representatives responded by saying, you cannot put new people on your cabinet without Senate approval. Andrew Johnson said, screw you, I'll do what I want, because not much has changed in American politics. So Andrew Johnson broke the law and installed a cabinet member without Senate approval. Because of this illegal activity, the House held an impeachment inquiry and then voted to impeach Andrew Johnson. And after he was impeached, it went to the Senate for a trial to see if he should be removed from office. Andrew Johnson narrowly avoided being removed from office, but all of his political capital had been spent to keep him as president. He was not reelected, but eventually went back home and ran for Senate and is to this day the only U.S. president who eventually went back and served in the Senate. Now, if you're like me, this story can be discouraging because here's a president who broke the law and was able to stay in office. But look closely at this story because what you hear in this story is that there are people who felt that this rebellion against the Constitution, all in an effort to maintain racially motivated chattel slavery, was wrong. And when we look at what is happening today in 2019, and there is this large debate about whether or not we should memorialize Confederate generals, I believe that is an extension of the conversation that was happening when Andrew Johnson was impeached. And this movement and conversation to remove these statues and to not make heroes out of people who supported racially motivated chattel slavery is ultimately the truth rising to the surface and challenging us 
to be a better nation. Now, this conversation is long overdue, and it's all in an effort to fight the horrific evil of white supremacy. But ultimately, we all know the end of this story, don't we? Truth will win out, and the fact is that this racism will be brought to its knees. This brings us to the second time that a president faced impeachment inquiry. Nearly 100 years after Andrew Johnson, Richard Nixon was using campaign funds to hire goons to break into the Watergate Hotel and spy on the Democratic National Convention. Nixon repeatedly lied to the American people over and over again, telling him that this was the activity of a criminal and he was in fact no crook. The House initiated an impeachment inquiry. They gave notice to Nixon that this was going to be a public investigation. And before the investigation even began, Nixon immediately resigned because he did not want to be the first president removed from office. Despite his lies, the truth rose to the surface and Richard Nixon had no choice but to resign. And the truth won. The third time a president faced impeachment inquiry was under the presidency of Bill Clinton. Now, Bill Clinton was guilty of sexual coercion. Sexual coercion is when a boss pressures an employee that reports to them for sex. But because this occurred in 1993 and not 2019, people were more concerned with the fact that Bill Clinton lied under oath when he infamously said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Because of that lie while under oath, Bill Clinton was impeached in the House and brought before the Senate to see if he should be removed from office. And he somehow, someway survived lying under oath because he had a different definition of sexual relations than the rest of the free world. While this is discouraging, just this past year, Bill Clinton went on a book tour and showed his face in public after the whole Me Too movement, and he has been repeatedly booed and questioned and asked why he thinks it's okay to be in public again after the way he treated a subordinate. You know what this is? It's the truth rising to the surface and winning. And I believe that Paul would write to anyone who's feeling anxiety about our current political climate to say, look at the stories in our history. In every scenario, the truth rises to the surface and wins. So if you're picking a side, pick the side of the truth. And the second point that Paul makes in this second chapter is that the truth is rooted in the eternal. The truth may not seem like the easiest road in the short term, but the truth will always win in the long run. So always partner with the truth and not a political party. Always partner with the truth and not with convenience. Always partner with the truth because that is the work that is worth doing. My brothers and sisters, the truth is rooted in the eternal. And if you're wondering which way to go in the future, then always look for what is true. 
This brings us to the third thing that Peter teaches, and it can be found in verses 17 to 22. Peter writes, These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm for false teachers. The deepest darkness has been reserved. For they speak bombastic nonsense, and with licentious desires of the flesh, they entice people who have just escaped from those who live in air. They promise the people freedom, but the false teachers themselves are slaves of corruption. For people are slaves to whatever masters them. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overpowered, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment that was passed on to them. What Peter tells us here, and especially in that last verse that we read, verse 21, is that he tells us is that whenever the truth is revealed to us, we have an obligation to stick with the truth and not with our religion, not with our country, and not with our political party. Instead, we have to point out how our tribe or ourselves are wrong and then work to change that. To illustrate this concept, I want to tell a story about my own tribe and its relationship with another story, the story of Noah and the ark. Now, we read about Noah in Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 9. And the story of Noah begins with God approaching Noah and saying these words in chapter 6, verse 7. I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. So the church tells the story of Noah this way. God spoke to Noah and warned Noah that a flood was coming. God then gave directions to Noah about how to build a boat, and Noah stepped out in faith and built a boat the likes of which the world has never seen. While Noah was building that boat, he would take breaks and preach to the people around the boat. He would preach about their soon coming destruction, and if they would only repent, then they would be allowed to enter the boat with Noah and his family and be saved in light of the flood. Now the people heard Noah preaching and they mocked and ridiculed him. They pointed to the boat and they said, what do you need a boat for? It's on land. There's no water near here. But Noah kept on building. By the time that Noah completed the boat known as the ark, not one person outside of Noah's family decided to join Noah in the ark. God was frustrated by this, but God said they are too far gone and I must destroy them. And so before the flood, God tells Noah and his family to get inside the ark, and God sends two of every animal and seven of the clean animals to the ark to be boarded on the ship. So here's Noah and his family, eight people total, among all the species on earth on a boat, and there's not a drop of water to be seen for a week. But then the rains come. And these rains are an emptying of the heavens. And these rains are so fierce and torrential that they fill all of the earth and people outside of the ark, all of the people except eight, drown. 
we read about this massive amount of death in Genesis 7:23 when we read God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground human beings and animals and creeping things and birds of the air they were blotted out from the earth only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark the rains continued for 40 days and 40 nights and then stopped The waters began to recede until the ark rested on top of a mountain. God then invited Noah and his family out and they saw a rainbow in the sky and God made a promise to Noah and his family. God's promise is found in chapter 7 verse 21 when God says, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth, nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. Now, most churches end the story there, but it's important to remember that Noah, upon seeing this rainbow, decides to plant a vineyard. He gets drunk, and then he gets naked, and then he curses his son, and the story comes to a close. To my Christian brothers and sisters, we must acknowledge that there are many problems with the story of Noah. And to address all of the problems of Noah would take an entire sermon series. So I'm telling you this because if you feel like I've skipped over or glossed over other problems in the story of Noah, I want you to know that I'm leaving some problems on the table because they're not relevant to our discussion today. Because the discussion we're having today is about false teachers. And when you look at one of the major problems of the story of Noah, it's when you look back at the way the church portrays this story from Noah hearing from God to building the boat to preaching outside the ark to welcoming the animals to the massive amount of death that one of those elements isn't even in the Bible. According to Genesis, Noah never preached outside the ark. This idea that Noah told people that their destruction was imminent and if they just repented, they could join him on the ark is not an idea that's grounded in the Bible. According to the Bible, God intended for Noah's family and only Noah's family to be on the ark. And this idea that the ark had an open door policy is not a biblical idea. Now, I have spoken to several people who feel very passionately that the open door policy of the ark was, in fact, biblical. These people point me to the words of Jesus, which can be found in Luke chapter 17, when Jesus says this, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so too it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, And the flood came and destroyed all of them. So people look at Jesus referencing or drawing a parallel from the second coming to the story of Noah. And they say, therefore, there must have been a component where Noah allowed people to join him on the ark because the ark and the story of Noah and the flood is a metaphor for the whole salvation narrative. While that may be fine to understand the story that way, let's be very clear. Jesus never says Noah preached outside the ark. And there's nothing wrong with adding that element to the story as long as you are honest where that element comes from. 
I know a lot of people who have pointed to books that are outside of the Bible, and in those books, it says that Noah preached outside the ark. To which I would respond, great. Then when you tell the story, make sure that you tell people that this part is coming from a book that is not in the Bible. This delineation is incredibly important as we are trying to be teachers who do not malign the way of truth. Now, there are some who will point to a King James version of the Bible and they'll say, see, Craig, this is how we know Noah preached outside the ark. And interestingly enough, this one passage is found in 2 Peter chapter 2, which is the chapter we are studying during this episode. So this verse is from those five stories that Peter is referencing to talk about how truth rises to the surface and wins. And when he talks about the story of Noah and the flood, Peter writes these words, and if he did not spare the ancient world, even though he saved Noah, who was a herald of righteousness. Herald is translated from the Greek word karuka. And karuka gets translated into preacher in the King James Version. Now, why preacher is a bad translation and why the New Revised Standard Version has chosen herald rather than preacher is because Karuka is a public orator who does not have religious affiliation. So while some may point to the King James Version and say, see, Craig, it says that Noah preached, it's from a very poor translation of Karuka, and it also doesn't say anything about creating more space for more humans on the ark. Now consider this story of Noah and the flood without that preaching component that Christians like to add. In other words, God shows up to Noah and says, Noah, I need you to build me a boat. I'm going to kill everyone on earth except for you and your family, and you get to go in this boat and survive a worldwide flood. Without the preaching component, Noah hears this and thinks, all right, sucks to be them. As commentator Karen Armstrong writes in her book on Genesis in the beginning, she says, Noah simply did what he was told, asked no questions, and saved his own skin. Karen Armstrong raises the question, so why do we celebrate Noah? Is he really a hero of the faith? There are so many questions that the story of Noah raises that I think are essential to asking for any person of faith. But with this preaching narrative, we've given people an out to make this story more palatable and convenient for a consumer form of Christianity today. I bring all of this up to ask you two questions. The first question is this. Can we please stop telling people a non-biblical story about Noah preaching in hopes of, quotes, converting people? We need to stop telling people this version of the story that doesn't exist. Or when we supplement the actual biblical story with other literature that tells us something different, we delineate and tell people what ideas come from where. And this may sound difficult to you, I will tell you it is difficult, but we are called to be people of the truth. 
And as Peter wrote so long ago, he tells us that the people we should listen to are the people who care for and respect the truth. So let's be honest about what this story is and where we get our ideas from. Which brings us to the second question I would like to ask you about Noah and the ark. What happens to you as a listener of this podcast when I tell you that Noah did not preach before he went into the ark? Do you become angry with me? Do you become angry with your Sabbath school or Sunday school teacher? Do you become angry with the fact that your parents may have told you the story differently? Do you become angry with God because now this story raises questions, serious questions about the character of God that wouldn't give people a chance to repent? Yeah. I ask you this question because this is not a convenient story. This story of Noah and the ark isn't even a children's story, and we've somehow attempted to make it a children's story. But this story that is so ingrained within Christian culture today is told in a way that is not honest to what the biblical text actually is. And so as a listener of this podcast, you may be thinking to yourself, man, I am tired of people in authority lying to me. Why don't they change? Well, if you've listened to this podcast enough, you know that one thing that we do is we often hold up a mirror to ourselves and ask, how am I part of the problem? So the fact is, if I am tired of people in authority telling me things that are untrue, then it's important for me to see how I have participated in false information and change my behavior. It's important for me to be part of a church that when we teach Noah and the flood, we teach it as honestly as possible. And yeah, it's difficult because there's lots of kids supplies out there for how to teach Noah. But the fact is we have to change the way that we talk about Noah because the other way simply isn't true. And this is why I believe so strongly that Peter opens this letter about false teachers about the importance of participation. This is hard work that asks us to challenge the dominant teachings and cultures of our day. And that brings us to the third point that Peter makes in the second chapter of 2 Peter. He tells people we are called to be people of truth. You want to call this Christianity thing your own? Then have a commitment to the truth. Because the truth takes effort. And the truth at times divides us from the people we care about. But ultimately, we are called to be people who hold and respect and care for the truth. We are people who believe that the truth is rooted in the eternal and that the truth will win out despite people in power lying to us repeatedly. And when we are presented with evidence or facts that prove how we have been wrong, we are people who are not intimidated by that situation, but walk into that situation with humility 
and apologies and say we have done wrong. We are here now to make it right because we are called to be people of truth. My brothers and sisters, may you see and embrace the truth in all. Thank you.